Acts 14, verses 19 through 28. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out to the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed the elders for them in every church with prayers and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. What are we doing this morning? All right, it's good to see you. If you're a guest, we're, we're thankful that you're hanging out with us today and hope uh, this is a service where you find joy and hope. Um, we, we have an interesting, little different sermon this morning. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but for those of you who know us, you know that we're going through uh, an interesting and challenging time in our life at the Hubbard home as my father-in-law has moved in with us uh, and is living his last days. And as I was listening to that, that last song and weeping a little bit and finding great joy in it, what I'm watching is a man who is going to his last breath with that demeanor. They, that, the, the trust in Christ, he is not shaken. He is, he is not fearful. It is, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing for us to watch. But uh, my father-in-law, Terry, is an Illinois farmer, spent his life in, in tractors and on combines and, and uh, farming the ground. He, he farmed uh, around 2,000 acres, farming all kinds of grain, corn, soybeans, and wheat primarily over his years. And uh, I was listening to my, my wife the other day having a conversation about his handkerchief. Anybody got a handkerchief like this? Now, let's be honest. Why do, you, why do most of us here have a handkerchief like this? It's a decoration that goes on like a scarecrow at Thanksgiving time or, or, or harvest fall time. or It's, it's something that's just kind of cute. Uh, I don't know anybody in our church who actually carries one of these bad boys around. Maybe you do, uh, but I, I've never seen anybody with this in their back pocket. But if you go over there, every farmer's got one of these all the time. You go to church, they all got their handkerchief right here or right here. Somewhere, like they, you know, back pocket or front pocket, they got their handkerchief with them. You meet them in the field, they have their handkerchief. It, it is with them. They are never without their handkerchief. Their handkerchief is a, a very important part of their daily rhythm, making sure they have a clean handkerchief in the morning and going out. And I always thought, can't you just grab a box of Kleenex? Doesn't seem like, like, for me, if I blew my nose in this, I'd be like done with it. And I don't want to put it back in my pocket. That just doesn't feel right. But the conversation was like this, because Heidi was talking to her dad, Terry, about the idea of a handkerchief. And what we discovered is a handkerchief is not only for blowing your nose. Do you realize that a farmer has hundreds of different uh, uses for a handkerchief? It is just in the pocket of the farmer for whatever he needs at that moment. We found out that the handkerchief can be used for, uh, let's say, a tourniquet. 
if you cut your finger real bad, or it can be used as something to wipe your forehead or to even put over top of your head if the sun is beating down on you. The, The handkerchief is really good for spreading out. And when you're having to work on a tractor and you take the nuts and bolts out, you have some place to put them where they will stay in the handkerchief. That's pretty handy, isn't it? Or, or if, if the bolt itself or something you're working on inside your tractor is really greasy, you get in there and, and, and kind of wipe it off. And sometimes you even use the handkerchief to get a grip on something that you have to turn and, and pull out or turn and pull. And, and I found out that also includes uh, the handkerchief has been used on my wife to pull a tooth. Now, whether or not he had pulled, put grease all over it and blown his nose before he did that or not, I'm not sure. But this handkerchief just has all these uses for a farmer and, and many, many more. And all of a sudden what I thought is, man, this, this useless thing to me, this thing, <laughs> I am not carrying a handkerchief. For the farmer becomes a useful tool to accomplish whatever it is the farmer desires from the handkerchief. It is a necessary component for the farmer to, to really accomplish his purpose and mission of you know, planting and harvesting and growing food for us. It is something that they have with them every day, and it is useful in the hands of the farmer. And I got to thinking about that and thinking, you know, that's us. There's nothing special or important about you or me or this guy we're going to talk about, the Apostle Paul, this morning. We're just, we're just stuff. But man, when we're in the hands of the farmer, and the farmer is given freedom to use us any way he wants to, our usefulness in the hands of the farmer is a beautiful thing. And so this week I've watched as that man in his final days in the hands of the farmer, in the hands of his Lord Jesus Christ, who he loves with all his heart. We keep having these people show up at our house to encourage and, and give hope to Terry. It, it, it flips. Everybody who comes in, it is Terry who is staring into these final days in the hands of Jesus, who is offering unbelievable hope and joy as he's not afraid. I've watched my kids who started really nervous and fearful about what it was going to like to have this process in our home figure out that there is great joy even in going into the last breath when you are a, a person who has trusted in Christ and you were just a handkerchief in the hands of the farmer, right? There's no better place to be than living my life for the fame and glory of Jesus, just Somebody who, who doesn't have a whole lot of worth in myself, although I am created in the image of God, but, uh, and there is beauty in that, but my worth really is wrapped up in the fact that I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him against that day. And, and so this morning, we're looking very specifically at this guy whose name, we, we call him, if you've been in church, the Apostle Paul, a.k.a. Saul of Tarsus. This one man, this story kind of is part of this. And here's what happens. We are studying this amazing book called the Book of Acts. It's a New Testament uh, story written by a man named Luke who was a traveling companion with this guy named Paul who writes the story of the first 30 years of Christianity and how Christianity started in a, with a small band of 120 people in Jerusalem uh, in a few months became... Uh, a, a massive movement in the city of Jerusalem among Jewish people. And the first half of Acts focused on the spread of the gospel 
primarily to Jewish people in what is modern-day Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, the regions around it. And, and we've seen just God at work through the lives of people, some of them being the apostles that Jesus chose, these 12 men that Jesus chose to walk with him and learn from him, others who had heard the gospel from the apostles but now are being used by God to take the gospel to different places. And we're seeing lives change, people being turned, lives being turned upside down. We're seeing healings and beauty and just all this amazing stuff and we're seeing people come to faith in Jesus by the thousands. It is a revival and awakening in uh, Israel, in Jerusalem, in the regions around it, the first half of Acts. And the main character, human character, the Holy Spirit is the main character in the whole story. From beginning to end, it is about God and about the application of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of people. So it is a God story. But the main human character in the first half of the book is the Apostle Peter, this guy who hung out with Jesus and knew him and, 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 and was a fisherman. And he then becomes the primary spokesperson for the apostles uh, as they preach the gospel uh, in, in the first part of Acts. But uh, what happens is uh, in Acts chapter 13, the focus of the book and the energy of the book changes from the early story of Christianity, primarily among Jewish people in Jerusalem and the region around it, the focus changes from the Jerusalem church to the church in Antioch. It's a church about 300 miles to the north, but it is in, it's a Roman city in the middle of um, the, the, um, what is modern-day Syria. Um, it is the third largest and, and one of the most important cities in the entire Roman Empire. It became the um, eastern capital of what the Roman Empire became. And, and there was a movement of Christians in Antioch, but that movement of Christians was drastically different for one big reason, that that church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now, what I mean by Gentile, what the New Testament speaks of as Gentiles, is anybody who didn't grow up Jewish, didn't grow up hearing the, the Old Testament stories, didn't know about Moses, didn't keep the law and follow the commandments and those sorts of things. You grew up in a world where you had the pantheon of gods from the, the, the Roman uh, uh, Greek and Roman mythology, you had the whole idea of the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle deeply shaping the way you saw the world. You were secular in the way you interacted with things. And, and, and so what you have in, in uh, Antioch is the, 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 the coming together of believers who were Jewish and Gentile in one church that actually exploded in that city. But this church had a massive missionary heart. And what they did is they sent out this man named, these two men named Paul and Barnabas, who were their, some of their best leaders, like their pastors and, and, and people who were central to the growth of that church in the city. But they, they commissioned them, they funded them, and they sent them out on a journey that was what we call Paul's first missionary journey. We'll come back to this in a minute. Paul's first missionary journey. And what happens is Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch, and they begin to go from town to town to town to town in what is modern-day Turkey. Three different regions there, but one of them is called Galatia. Uh, but but, but what it, this region that is modern-day Turkey, they're going to the major cities of that region. And when they go into town, they're preaching Jesus and planting churches. That's what they're doing. They're sharing this gospel, this wonderful story that we tell in here week after week after week about the fact that God sent Jesus into the world, that Jesus lived the perfect life, and then he died on the cross in our place for our sins, that third, on the third day he rose again, and that there is hope for redemption, forgiveness, for heaven, for all these things when we turn from ourselves and we trust in Jesus. And so Paul, anywhere he goes, any place he shows up, he is going to preach Christ 
And what happens is people believe, and those people are now disciples. They are making disciples. So he preaches Christ. They make disciples or followers of Jesus, and those followers are placed in a community of faith that is called the church. So he is preaching Christ, seeing people one to Christ, and he is planting churches, starting new communities of faith in every city that he goes. Okay, so what happens is from here to the end of our series, we're going to be talking about the traveling journeys of this guy named Paul. But what I wanted to do this morning, this text actually helps us see his missionary methods. And sometimes when we are studying the Bible, we get wrapped up in going section to section to section that we never pause and get above it and see the whole story from 30,000 feet. And this guy, Paul, is actually outside of Jesus Christ, the most important missionary and most important theologian the church will ever have. Now, some of you have heard his story or know a little bit about this. This might be a refresher. But today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us that this is a biographical sermon. I'm going to tell you the story of the Apostle Paul. Okay? Now, a couple things about this. First thing I'm going to warn you, this is a 13-point sermon. So hold on. I heard somebody over here go, great. Uh, Now, uh, but I will move through most of these points fairly quickly. Uh, the other thing I will tell you about the sermon itself is this actually is, comes from a lecture. I teach Old and New Testament history from Missouri Baptist University, and I am actually pulling from a lecture that I give in that class. But I thought it would be really helpful for us to see the whole story of this man who is Paul, a.k.a. Saul of Tarsus, to figure out his story, to see his whole like his whole life in one snapshot, so that as we go forward, if you stay with us, as we go forward, you will kind of have the whole picture so that we would go from place to place in the rest of this story. You will understand the big picture of the story and understand how the section fits in. Now, one last thing in preparation. I know some of you are note takers, and you're going to want to write this. And so this morning, we've done something for you, okay? It's already out. Two ways you get this, and it's okay if you want to get up, move around, and grab the paper version, but if you do our family worship sheet, so every week we hand out a sheet that has sermon notes with an idea, a way to do family worship. If you picked up that, this outline is already on there. If you didn't pick up that, if you go to, just grab your phone right now and go to blog.genesiseureka.com, blog.genesiseureka.com, and the top post on our blog should be this morning's worship service. If you open that document, or if you're, you're part of Genesis, you can find it on Koinonia as well, our online community. But you will see a document that just says the biography of Paul. Click on that, it will open the notes I'm about to share with you. So rather than feeling like you gotta write everything down, if you're that person, it will be right there in front of you and you can have it either in paper or just open on your device this morning and therefore you can follow along. So, so um, what happens here in the, our text is in, look at verse 24 in our text where, Paul, where we're told exactly what Paul does. Um, I'm sorry, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra, to, to Iconium, and to Antioch. What I want you to see there is they preached the gospel, they made disciples. This is what Paul is doing. Paul gave his life to this, but it's not the way his life started. It's not the way he got going. Yet, this, I want you to hear this, near the end of his life, 
he makes this declaration. This is, I believe, his life purpose statement. Acts 20, 24, he says this. I do not account my life as any value or of, of, uh, as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is his goal, to, to keep preaching Christ until he reaches the finish line. Now, his calling was this great missionary calling. Like I said, he's the theologian, the missionary. And, and the danger is you will start hearing me say, we all need to be Paul. Actually, what I want, you to hear, want to hear you say is that God has uniquely called and gifted you for what he has placed you here for. And it probably is not Paul's calling. The majority of the people that we find in the New Testament, we never meet them by name, but they are the Christians who are faithful church members who just love Jesus in their city. Paul becomes the major character, but what he is leaving behind him in every city is things that look like us here. And the people who are in the pews, who are showing up at church, who are part of the, the Christian community, who are loving one another even though they are vastly different from one another, who are making Christ known in the city by their actions and their, their attitudes and their proclamation, those people are just as important to the story of Acts as is the Apostle Paul. And the reason I know this is because Paul is going to come and go in a short period of time. But the churches that he leaves behind are going to be incredibly influential in the Roman Empire, so much so that from this point in time where there's almost no churches in any Roman city, they don't exist, in a short 200 years, there will be over 300 million Christians in the Roman Empire, uh, and, and it will make up well over 10% of the population, and the influence that they are having because they love Jesus will change the empire by 313 A.D., and, and, and this started with Paul's preaching, but it's the local churches that come out of this that are important. You and me just loving Jesus in our city as God raises this up. But Paul is important in the story because he is this person that God is going to use for this missionary story. And that's what I want to focus in on, 13 points that is the biography of the Apostle Paul and just laying out his life story as he tries to, to run the race well and make much of Jesus and finish the ta task of testifying of Christ, okay? So that's where we're going. You ready? I guess not. You ready? We're, we're going we're to roll now, all right? Number one. Number one. Who is this guy, Paul? He was a Jew from the Roman city of Tarsus in modern-day Turkey. He was a Roman citizen, but also a zealous Jew. And his birth name was Saul. Okay, so what we have is this guy who is, is Jewish by descent. He did not grow up in Jerusalem, but he is passionate about his Jewish heritage and faith, about the scriptures. He is a Bible scholar. Um, he grows up in this, this little town called Tarsus, which is um, in, in modern-day Turkey. It's a coastal city, um, and, and so he's known as Saul of Tarsus, and he has these two names. Paul and Saul. And people will say, well, wait a minute, why does a guy have two names? And there's kind of two theories. If you grew up with the first theory here, that's okay. I don't hold it, but I'm going to tell you both theories. I, I'll tell you what I think is going on here afterwards. But there are some people, the first theory is that some people in the Bible, when they meet Jesus, they get new names. Or when they meet God. So in the Old Testament, we have this guy named Abram. And God changes his name when he meets 
the, the God of the scriptures, the one true and living God, changes his name to Abraham. Or this guy whose name is Jacob, and his name gets changed to Israel. Okay, and there's other stories of people who once they meet, meet God, God changes their name. In the New Testament, this guy named Simon meets Jesus. And Jesus says, you are Simon, but from now on, I'm going to call you Peter, which means like Rocky. You know, he's walking around going, yo, Adrian, I love you. You know, uh, Rocky, you know, uh, that's Peter's name, right? And, and God, Jesus gives him a new, new name. And some people say that's what's going on here. Before he meets Jesus, he's Saul. Then he meets Jesus, he's Paul. There's two problems with that theory. The first one is his name change in the book of Acts doesn't coincide with his interaction with Jesus when he meets Jesus, which we'll come to in a minute. He, he's continued to be called Saul for a while after that, and then he's called Paul, and it, the author, Luke, just switches names. And the second thing is there is nothing in the story where, where God says, you were Saul and now you're Paul. More than likely, what I, so if you grew up and you'd heard that, that's fine. I'm not saying it's wrong, but more than likely what's going on here is that Saul a.k.a. Paul, is doing something that would have been fairly common for Jewish people who lived in the larger Roman Empire, which was to have a Jewish name. And then when they were out in the larger Greek-Roman world, they would have a name that had more of a Greek flavor to it. And so Saul is very Jewish. And what we see is he is called Saul while the story is centered on the Jerusalem church. And we have the name switch and around chapter 13, where we go from the first half of the Acts story to the second half, which is the focus on Paul going to the nations. And so more than likely, his name in, in Acts is just saying, man, when, when he's around Jerusalem, everybody calls him Saul. When he's out to the nations, he goes by Paul because it's like not a hurdle. This is kind of maybe one of the things he's doing to keep from, like we, we had this conversation around here for years. Listen, the gospel itself is going to be offensive. When we tell people they must repent of sin and trust in Jesus, Talking to people who want to live their own way, that can be something that, that they choke on. So that's offensive, but we want to remove every offense up to the gospel. And we still want to do that. And maybe this is Paul's way of making sure that when he's preaching Christ in these cultures, people don't first of all think of, oh, this is some Jewish nut job, but he's just Paul. But whatever his reason, that's probably why he had two names. But we're also told in Scripture that he is a Roman citizen. And, and in that point in the world, and as we go through Acts, this will be a big deal. At that point in time in the world, most people who lived outside of Rome in the Roman Empire were not Roman citizens. Which means the Roman government, their, their agencies, the Roman soldiers could treat them however they want. They had no rights. But people who were Roman citizens had similar rights to what we have in our country, the right of due process, the right not to be, to be misused and treated and thrown into jail for no reason at all, the right to, to, to speak freely in certain contexts. And so what we learn early in the story is that Paul has this, this Roman citizenship, and so he becomes this person who kind of has a foot in both worlds, is highly educated, and is able to be used by God greatly because of God, how, how God you, uniquely shaped and changed and gifted him. Which leads us to our second point here. Uh, he was a Pharisee trained by a guy named Gamaliel. See that in Acts 22. He was highly intelligent and educated in both Jewish and Greek thought. His awareness to both cultures uniquely prepared him for God's mission. And so like I said, he's, he's, he's uber smart, right? You ever been in situations where like you just, you immediately knew who the smartest guy in the room was? Paul was that guy, but he, he carried that, that, that wisdom 
and brilliance with humility, especially after Christ changed him. He'd been trained by a guy named Gamaliel, and here's the reason that's important. He was a Pharisee trained by a guy named Gamaliel. So Pharisees were this sect of Judaism that were extremely focused on knowing and keeping the Old Testament rules and laws and Bible. You could not become a Pharisee until you had memorized the first five books of the Bible. So anybody who's seen the Bible as a name to Pharisee, know this. They memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, I'm not going to do a show of hands, but my guess is in this room, if I said how many of y'all have read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, not many, right? But he's got it memorized. And Gamaliel is actually the most influential Jewish thinker in the first century. There are still conversations in 2022 when you think about Judaism and the schools of thought in Judaism. There is a Gamalalian school of thought that influenced Judaism. So he is like at, at Yale Divinity School. He is at Harvard. He, he, he is being trained under the, the, the greatest Jewish thinker of his time. We meet this guy in scripture a couple times, but Paul has been deeply influenced, but he's also become highly educated in the way the larger world thinks. And this uniquely gifted him and prepared him for the mission that God had for him well before he was saved. Now, you're probably sitting here going, that ain't me. I'm not that smart. I'm not... But here's what I want you to hear. That's what God did for Paul, and it uniquely gifted him. Here's the thing. The life influences, the shape that you have, your, your background, your story, your education, your gifts, God has also uniquely gifted and shaped you for the mission and the purpose that he has for your life. You are not Paul. I am not Paul. But God has pl- shaped you And if you're a Christian, he has saved you and he has placed you in his family so that he can use you. We are all just this. And whoever you are, place yourself in the Lord's hands, trust your life to him, and he will use you in significant ways for the purpose of his kingdom. But Paul was uniquely gifted and shaped for who he was going to be. This Pharisee, this person who who really was... um, Highly educated and learned. But this leads us to number three. Because of this, he spent his early life seeking to defend Judaism from Christianity, going as far as persecuting Christians and having them imprisoned and even killed. His understanding of Judaism has him him ending up in Jerusalem, and he becomes the, the, the dark side, the Darth Vader of attacks against Christianity in the early story. He is standing over Stephen, this, this great preacher and an early convert to Christianity and giving approval of the fact that he is being stoned to death. From there, he, he starts a persecution in Jerusalem and then even leaves Jerusalem and starts chasing people in the region as they are trusting in Jesus and pl- trying to start churches. And he is going on behalf of the Jewish religious leadership to hunt them down, to have them them uh, imprisoned and even uh, harassed, beaten, and some of them even killed. He, he is, in the early days of Christianity, he is Christianity's greatest human enemy. And, and, and if, if God would have left him to those vices and brought judgment, God would have, Jesus would have been right to do this, but This is not the way the Lord chose to work in Saul's slash Paul's life. So number four, 
His life is completely turned upside down. At his conversion on the road to Damascus, where he was traveling to arrest Jewish Christians, he sees a light from heaven, he hears Jesus speak, and he is blinded, leaving him helpless, unable to care for himself, unable to get anywhere. But his sight is restored by a man named Ananias, who also baptizes Paul. So, so early in our, we actually have a couple sermons that looked at this story. But Paul is going to the city called Damascus to arrest Christians. But while he is there, Jesus meets him face to face. Paul sees the light, hears a voice. The people who are traveling with him hear the voice, but they can't discern the light and they can't understand what the voice is saying. But Paul sees a light and, and Jesus speaks and says, why are you persecuting me? I love that. Church of Jesus Christ, listen to me. If, if we go through hardship, if we go through suffering, if we go through persecution, Jesus does not look at Saul and say, why are you persecuting my people? He goes, he takes it personally. He says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And what happens in this moment is the entire paradigm of Saul's life is flipped upside down because up till now, he thought he was serving God by taking out Christians. He now has come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament promised. He places his faith in Christ. He is blinded and left helpless. But, but eventually, Ananias, this man who like, is faithful and lays hands and baptizes Saul, and Saul, scales fall from Saul's eyes, and now he sees physically, but more importantly, he sees spiritually, and his life is drastically, immediately changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, nobody's beyond the reach of Christ. Nobody. E even a terrorist, because that's what Paul is. And so his life is radically changed. His whole world is turned upside down. And so what happens, and this will be interesting to those of you who've interacted with the life of Paul in the past. After his conversion, he actually spends the next 13 or so years of his life in these cities, Damascus, Jerusalem, Tarsus, Antioch, where he preaches, studies, and grows in his faith. Now I'm gonna show you this, show you, we're gonna show you a few maps this morning. Not that maps are all fun, but for some of us, visuals will help, okay? And so this is kind of what we're talking about. He, Damascus is up there kind of in the middle and near Arabia. That's where Paul was going, where he meets Christ, okay? And he spends some time there but he also ends up for, for some time in the city of Jerusalem, then up in Antioch, then, or actually he goes to Tarsus first and then comes back to Antioch for 13 years. Now, this is, this is why this was important when I, I studied this and figured this out. Here's what I thought. Paul met Jesus, rode to Damascus, and the next weekend he had packed up his, his, um, uh, you know, his suburban and got everything to go on his trips and he was ready to go and he just started going all over the world. There's actually a 13 year gap between his conversion and this first missionary journey. So what's going on in that 13 years? Well, he is starting to preach, he is starting to study, he is starting to reframe his understanding of the gospel by reading the, the New Testament himself, or Old Testament himself, but he is also being discipled by people, very specifically a guy named Barnabas, steps into his life and becomes this massive encourager, Barnabas grabs Saul by the hand and takes him to Jerusalem because all the Jews in Jerusalem, especially the apostles, are like terrified of Saul, thinking, okay, this guy, yeah, we get what he's doing. I'm a Christian. Sure you are, you know? I mean, they're kind of freaked out. Like, think about how you would, you would be if, like, the biggest terrorist in town was like, I want to join your church. You'd be like, uh. But Barnabas takes Saul to the apostles. 
And so now the apostles pour into Saul's life. 13 years, he ends up in these four cities, and, and what he's doing is God is preparing him for this mission. He is discipling him. Paul is growing and learning and studying, forming his understanding of the gospel, forming the theology. And Saul himself, or Paul himself, says that part of this development is that Jesus himself at times continued to appear and speak to Paul. He becomes an apostle, as someone who sees Christ face to face, he becomes somebody who goes with the very message of Jesus to the world. And so after this, he ends up in Antioch. That's the last city he ends up. That church sends him out. And that's where we're at in our story now. So we're studying Acts. From, a, from uh, about 45 to 58 AD, Paul embarks on three major missionary journeys that take him all over the world to preach the gospel and plant new churches. So... Three major missionary journeys. So check it out. Here's the three. First one is this one. And what I want you to see in this one is that he leaves from Antioch. Um, uh, Antioch is up there kind of in the north, the, the right corner north of Syria. He leaves, he goes to Cyprus, and then he ends up in what is modern-day Turkey. There, those, uh, There's areas of Pamphylia, Galatia, near uh, Cilicia there. Uh, and he is just going from town to town to town, preaching Christ and making much of Jesus. So that's the first missionary journey, okay? Second missionary journey looks like this. He starts by going back through the regions. Instead of hopping on a boat, he just goes by, by, um, uh, you know, by foot. But he goes through the same regions he started in. He ends up going through Asia... There's a really cool story we'll get to of the fact that what he wanted to do is circle back and go all the way down through Asia, but he sees a vision and ends up actually over in Macedonia and Achaia, which are modern-day Greece. And he starts preaching the gospel there, and then, like the first trip, he gets on a boat, comes back, and ends up back in Antioch. That's trip number two. Trip number three, this is the third missionary journey in the maps, and what you can see is that he kind of follows the same path as the second missionary journey, Hits a lot of the cities, but then he works his way back into other parts of Asia, including the city of Ephesus, which is a major city in the New Testament. And, and so here's what it looks like on one map. And here's the point I want you to see. And that's a lot of lines. It will give you a headache if you look at it long enough. But here's what I want you to see. That what Paul is doing is his first trip, he is making this circle. His second trip, he follows a lot of the same path of the first circle but, circle, but then he makes this circle. It goes to new cities, and then he comes back to Antioch. Third trip, he leaves Antioch, and meet, he makes the same, kind of same path, but then he goes this circle. Every time he leaves, he does go back and love on churches that already exist, but he goes to new cities. He is primarily going to the major urban areas of the Roman Empire to make much of Jesus, preach Christ, and plant churches. And what happens is Paul's ministry is significant because where he goes, there are churches in these cities. Those, a lot of these churches are growing like crazy. The Lord is blessing it. It is the Lord who's doing the work. He, he even claims this in our text this morning. But as the Lord is doing the work in these cities, these cities now have a mission outpost, a, a, a gathering of disciples who love Jesus, who are, are Jew and Gentile, which is insane at that point in the world. This, this will be a major theme we hit all the way through this series. That, that, that what the Lord is doing through the ministry of Paul is he is saving both Greeks or, or, or Gentile, non-religious non people or people who are part just into the Roman religions and, and who are 
ethnically not Jewish and Jewish people who are firm adherents. And at this point in time in the world, those two types of people would not have anything to do with each other unless both of them were going to make money off of it. You do not go to dinner with your Jewish friend if you're a Gentile. You do not hang out in, in your backyard and invite your, 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 your Jewish neighbors if you're a Gentile. If you're a Jew, you do not you know, enjoy meals because if you're in a meal and they serve you something that has a little pork in it, uh, like we had at my house last night with pork steaks, that would be an offense. Like You just don't do that. We don't like you. We don't want to have anything to do with you. you, you we are against you. Uh, and now they are in churches together. It's a miracle that's part of the beauty of the New Testament story. And every one of these cities has a church, has, has an outpost of God's kingdom. And so here's what John Stott says about it. He says, in a little more than 10 years, uh, St. Paul established the church on, in four providences of the Roman Empire, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia, before 87 AD, there were no churches in these providences. In 57 AD, Paul could speak of his work in those areas as being done. Now, when Paul says that, he's not saying there's, there's no more work to do. He's saying, I've, we've planted a church. I don't need to come back and try to plant a church in the city. There's already Christians in the city. I'm going to keep going on. And so these missionary journeys become a major part of the story. We will read about this all through Acts. The rest of Acts is going to be us looking for, uh, at Paul going from town to town doing these things. So here's what's going to happen. The next few points here are actually me telling you the story of how Paul did these journeys. What were some of his missionary methods? What was it that he did as he traveled? So number seven, which like I said, these are now what's happening as Paul goes on these three great journeys. Number seven, in each city... Paul begins by preaching in the synagogue. Now, who worships in the synagogue? Who hangs out there? Jewish people. This is a Jewish church. He often finds some of the scattered. I'll come back and explain that in a minute. And then preaches in the secular marketplace of the town. So let, let me, you know, these are short, like, little statements that I, I want to explain what we're talking about. So he goes first to a synagogue. So who are the scattered I'm talking about? What we find in Acts is the whole Christian movement for the first about seven or eight years, is in Jerusalem. That's it. And what scatters that church is Saul. So what happens is Saul starts a persecution, and they begin to flee, and these people now move all over the Roman Empire. They, they just spread out everywhere. They end up in, in all these cities like Antioch and, and, and like um, parts of Samaria and, and in parts of Judea. But what we find is they actually spread all over the Roman Empire. And by this time, there were Jewish settlements in almost every major city. That, that this, this spreading out of Judaism had happened. And so what these people did is they were now followers of Jesus. But imagine, like, imagine you, you, you came to Jerusalem to celebrate this crazy festival. And this festival was uh, like the Passover. Uh, or, or actually you came to, to the day of Pentecost and you're there. And all of a sudden you hear the gospel preached and you come to believe in Jesus as your Messiah. And man, all of a sudden you see more and more friends and neighbors and people you know coming to follow Jesus. And it all is going amazing until this one guy, Stephen, who's preaching the gospel, gets arrested, gets beat up, and gets stoned to death. And this guy named Paul, or this guy named Saul, is giving approval to what happens. And now what happens is Saul, at the request of the Jewish leaders in the town, starts going after anybody who's claiming Christ. And you have had to flee for your life. 
and you end up in a town, say, like um, uh, Thessalonica in, in modern-day Greece. Um, you have kinfolk there. You, 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 it's a, like you, you can jump into a family business there and say, you fled to Thessalonica, and you get there, and you're like the only believer in Jesus in that town. There's definitely no Gentiles who believe in Jesus. But you're, you're, even your family is all of a sudden skeptical. They want you to be quiet about your faith, and you start praying. You just start praying, Lord, I know that Jesus is real. I know he died and rose again. Lord, send somebody. Send somebody to my city someday who can give us a, a, a community of faith like what I had in Jerusalem. And, and maybe praying that for decades. And who shows up to the town to be the church planter? It's the same guy who caused the scattering. It's an amazing part of the story that he's the one who shows up and preaches Christ in your city. He shows up in your synagogue one day, and you've been going to synagogue as a faithful Jew, but you keep hearing the message going, this is really about Jesus, but I don't know how to tell these people because they will throw me out. And Paul comes in and opens the Bible and says, let me tell you who this is about. It's about Jesus. He gets himself in trouble, but now you believe and you see some of your friends in the synagogue believe. Next thing you know, Paul's preaching in the marketplace. Now, the marketplace means that once he, normally he gets thrown out of the synagogue and he ends up in, he will go to whatever the public center of culture in that city is. And those, the marketplaces look different in different towns. For example, help me out. This is audience participation time. Those of you who have fallen asleep, now it's time to jump back in, all right? Help me out. What is the cultural marketplace? Where is the place where people gather and kind of the center of culture for Eureka? I didn't hear it. What was the question? Walmart, all right. That's a good place. What else? Breadco. Downtown. Like, I, I, I kind of think, no, I'm not saying any of these are wrong. I kind of think if Paul came here, he would end up down there, down, you know, uh, uh, the, the central, yeah, the, the, the um, downtown area of Eureka. And he would just kind of hang out there and start preaching Christ there. What about the city of St. Louis? Where would it be here? Maybe the Arch? Ballpark? Forest Park? See, this cultural marketplaces. And what we see in the New Testament, it, every city it looks a little bit different. But what if Paul were to go to, say, Columbia, Missouri? Where would it be there? He'd end up at Mizzou, right? Because it would, it would look a lot different in a city like that than it would, say, Eureka or downtown St. Louis. What about Festus? Where, where, where's, where's Scott Pacino? Main Street, all right. Every time I hear, I ask about Festus. The reason I raise this, I teach this class down in, at Jefferson College, and every time I throw this out, the answer is Walmart. And every other student's like, yep, that's where it is in Festus, you know. But, but every city, and so what we're going to see is, in some cities, Paul will end up in a marketplace. In other cities, he will end up in a place of learning. But wherever he goes, he ends up in what is the secular marketplace, and he preaches Christ there. So now he's gone to Jew and Gentile. People from both groups end up believing and he starts to form a church uh, in that city with people from both backgrounds and stories. He starts discipling them, helping them grow, and, and, and now he, there's a church. By the time he's been to both marketplaces, in most places, he is now getting beat up and thrown out of the city. Not always, but in most places. And so, number eight, all along the way, he encounters hardships, persecutions, even attempted murders. He's shipwrecked multiple times, left for dead more than once, all for the name of Christ. 
His key instigators are Jews who oppose his message of grace. That's what we see in our text this morning, that Jewish people who were following him from town to town, he literally gets these group of people who are now following him, who show up in these cities, and these Jews from these other cities, who are influenced by Jews from other cities who came to them, are showing up and trying to incite a riot, and they get one going, and it leads to Paul literally being stoned. Now, that does not mean he went to Colorado, just so you know. Okay, some of you all get that a little bit later. Uh, <clears throat> um, like, it's, a, it's mob violence. And we're told they, they assumed he was dead. But Paul, like, he's, he, after the, the mob leaves thinking they've killed the guy, his buddies and the people who are part of the church in this city who were distraught gather around him, and Paul gets up. They nurse him back to health quickly, and he gets on his way, and, and what's he do? He goes to the next city, and he preaches Christ makes disciples, and he plants a church there. That's his message. But everywhere he goes, he's getting beat up. He writes a letter called Galatians. Galatians is actually a letter written by Paul to the churches from his first missionary journey. And he makes a statement in Galatians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I want you to hear that phrase. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. What is Paul saying as he closes this letter? Sounds like a cute look. Well, I bear in my body. Like I, I have like my body just lifts the hope of Jesus. That's not what he's saying. Paul is literally looking at these people going, if I took off my shirt, you would see the scars and the wounds and the disfigurement, the real suffering, you could visibly see in my body the marks of preaching Christ. But he keeps going. He keeps going and it's beautiful. So number nine, at the end of each journey, he returns to many of the cities, helping to establish the churches and appointing elders, the key leaders. So, so what he does is he goes from town to town to town, and when he gets to the end, he kind of retraces his steps. He comes back, and, and when he gets back to each city, the second time he enters the city, when he does this, and he does it quite often on these journeys, when he gets back to these cities the second time, he doesn't go to the marketplace, he doesn't go to the synagogue, he goes and gathers with the people of God, the church. And he loves them, he encourages them. In fact, look at verses 22 through 24 in our text this morning. Grab your Bible and look at it, okay? Verse 22, it says, right before it, it says that he returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. This is retracing his steps in the story. If you went back the previous two chapters, it would tell us about Paul showing up in those three cities. And here's what it says. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples. So he is strengthening, he's pouring in their lives, strengthening them, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now, the faith is not just saying, believe, baby, you can, you can do it. Believe and believe, like, like Ted Lasso, right? Uh, he, he is looking at them saying, I challenge you to stay firmly, firmly rooted in the faith. The faith is not just the idea of belief. It is a system of thought and beliefs that is the Christian faith. And he's saying, listen, there are doctrines and ideas that we hold together. You stay in those. Don't give those up. You stay strong in those to, to remain firm in the faith, saying through, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That, hey, it's going to be hard. Following Jesus is not going to be a cakewalk. 
but, but it is the way you get into the presence, into the final kingdom. It is how you cross from this life to the next, knowing that you will stand face to face to Jesus and he will see you through. And so he say, and, and uh, must enter the kingdom of God, verse 23. And they appointed elders for them in every church. And with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they, in, uh, in whom they had believed. Uh, in other words, so what they do, they, they, they get into the church and they make sure the church is now left, not in Paul and Barnabas' hands, but in the hands of faithful pastors who love that church. I'm so thankful for the Genesis elders. You can pray for us this weekend. We're going to spend the weekend on a retreat just praying for you and, and, and dreaming and thinking about how the Lord wants us to move forward as a church and the purpose he has for us. And, and so appointing elders, and this is so what goes on, and, and, and there is faithfulness, and, and, and there is um, hope, but that church is then left to be salt and light in their community, to make much of Jesus in their city, and Paul goes on. And, and this is what I want you to really catch, that the story of Paul is this really cool story of a missionary, but the wake of churches and missionaries to their city who are part of local churches is really what changes the empire. It is not Paul. It is faithful people who are uniquely wired, who, who are new, uniquely gifted for what God called them to do in their city with their church that turns Rome on its ears in the next 200 years. And so um, this is what Paul has been doing. Number 10, during his journeys, he writes several letters to churches and individuals. 13 of these make up a large part of our New Testament. Part of what Paul does is he starts letter writing. And he actually writes more than 13. There are some letters we don't have that are referenced by some of the other letters. But the cities and the churches that he visits, Paul ends up encouraging and, and, and writing to them and giving them letters that will help encourage them and keep those churches strong. And the Lord, by his grace, has given us 13 letters from Paul in our New Testament. It is some of the deepest, richest theological content in the entire scripture. I'm thankful for Paul's letters. Paul's letters help us. The story of the gospel is told in Matthew, Mark, Luke. But the deep, end of the pool message of the gospel comes from Paul's letters. And so Paul writes these letters, and, and it's part of his journey. All right? Number 11. All right, so now I'm picking up towards the end of the story. I'm going to hit these really quick because I'm out of time. Number 11. Paul takes a trip to Jerusalem in AD 58. This is told in Acts. He's arrested primarily to protect him from the Jewish crowd by the Romans. Paul appeals to Caesar, meaning that a Rome, as a Roman citizen, he is appealing to the highest court. He is sent there and imprisoned in house arrest for two years. Several of his letters come at this time, and the book of Acts ends during this imprisonment. So what happens is, near the end of the story, we're going to see Paul going not back to Antioch, but back to Jerusalem. He goes back to Jerusalem because he's been collecting an offering there is a famine, and Christians who are also being marginalized are hurting bad. And these believers from all over the world that he's visited, he's been collecting money, and he actually has a whole group of people who are coming with him to, to be an encouragement to Christians in Jerusalem. He goes back to Jerusalem. When he gets there, immediately Jewish people recognize his presence, and they go after him. And, and they're trying to kill him in the temple. Like, think about this. They are in the, the place of worship, and they're trying to kill Paul there, a Roman guard sees it from the tower above, comes down and arrests Paul for getting beat up. Now, let that sink in. They arrest Paul for getting beat up, and then they look at him and go, tell us. And if you don't tell us we are going to beat you, why were you getting beaten? 
Thank you for helping me, you know. But what happens is the Romans arrest him, but he's a Roman citizen. And so when he lets them know that, they're like, all right, we can't touch you. We got to give you due process. There's a plot against his life. There's a whole group of people who say, we will not eat again until Paul's dead. And they hear about this assassination plot, and they actually get him out of Jerusalem up to this, this Roman city that is um, north of there, that is the kind of Caesarea, is the Roman capital of, of, of uh, like the Roman government in that area. Paul's there for a couple years, and then he appeals to Rome for his trial, which means as a Roman citizen, something that could carry the death penalty, he has to be sent to actually to Rome where his, his case will be heard by the court of Caesar. And so the, the journey's interesting. There's a whole shipwreck story where you feel like Johnny Depp is going to walk out of it because you feel like pirates are everywhere. And, but he ends up in Rome uh, awaiting house arrest. And this is where Acts ends. It's an interesting ending to the book of Acts because you want the story resolved, but Acts doesn't resolve the story. But, but he is awaiting. So we end with Paul under house arrest, awaiting his trial. And if you know enough about Paul, you're like, oh, this is, like, he dies in Rome. This is true, but not here. Well, Acts doesn't give us a story. We do have a couple more things we know. And I'll get these out real quickly and then a couple applications. And then we're going to sing to Jesus. He's released in Rome after two or three years. And he continues his journeys, which may have included places like Spain and Crete. So the island of Crete is a Mediterranean island. We know that he went there and continued his journey. Church history tells us he actually made it to Spain as well. <clears throat> we don't have that in scripture, but there is good testimony that is believable. And he is actually the patron saint, if you grew up Catholic, of Spain. Meaning he's the one who brought the gospel there. And so <clears throat> um, he, he continues these journeys and goes for uh, several other years or a couple years but for some reason, he ends up again arrested. And the last point this morning is that in AD 68, Paul is imprisoned and beheaded by Nero in Rome. By this time, Nero, the emperor, has really turned sideways, hates Christians. It feels like he's gaining popularity among the crowds by persecuting Christians. That he is responsible for the death of the two major characters in Acts, Peter and Paul. And Paul is beheaded at the end of his life in Rome. Verse 22, Paul is talking about... Uh, I'm sorry, verse 27, we're told that he, Paul returned to Antioch at the end of this journey. And he says, they arrived and gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them. Hear that? Not look at what I did, but man, let me tell you what Jesus did. Let me tell you the work of God. And how he had opened the door for faith to the Gentiles. This was a man, Paul was a man who was just a simple, ordinary guy, but God uniquely gifted and wired him to be used in the hands of his Savior for whatever the Lord wanted. And his life was full of joy, yet persecution and hardship. He gets to the end of his life, and his last words as he's writing to Timothy, and we'll read these as, as our band comes up here and, and prepares for us to sing to Jesus. But I want you to hear Paul's parting words, because I told you, I read from Acts 20 a, a little bit ago where Paul says, it is my hope and dream that I will run the race, race well, that I will make it to the finish line. Look at how he closes his life as he is writing the last letter he will write, the last section of the last letter he will write to his young disciple in the faith named Timothy. Timothy. He says this, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. In other words, he is in prison again, waiting for Nero to do what Nero is going to do. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Man, that's beautiful. That's it. We're not all going to be Paul. But if you're a follower of Jesus, he is uniquely gifted and called you and placed you in this church to live for the fame of his name, the glory of his kingdom, to be just a handkerchief in the farmer's hands. And we're running a race. We're running it together. It's a relay. It's not a competition. It's a relay. We're running it together. Somebody handed the baton to you and shared the gospel with you. And we are now running to make much of Christ, to be faithful to his call, to stay in the faith, to know that there is going to be hardship and persecution. There's time, there are going to be times we're running this race. It's going to be hard. And it's going to wear us out. But we keep running with our brothers and sisters around us, and we beg it because there is a crown of life awaiting us. And so we just run. And Paul is a huge encouragement towards this. I'm thankful for him. I hope, I'm hopeful that this sermon will help us as we get to the next week to see the beauty of his life and message. But it's not about Paul, it's about Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, the words of Paul and the words of this message, I hope they challenge you to think about this. We will have people over here at the end of our, our sermon who are there to pray with anybody who needs prayer, to, to talk to anybody who has questions. But if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we would love to have a conversation about what it means to trust in Christ like Paul did. And for the rest of us, it's a reminder that, man, our life makes the most sense and has the most beauty when our life is just firmly placed in the hands of our Lord. And we trust and hold on and live our life for him and not for ourselves. And so that's the call today as we think about this great guy. Lord, we love you, praise you for Paul's life and story and just ask you to help us to see in his faithfulness a marker for our own and pray that we would honor you with the way we live our lives. In your name I pray, amen.